talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The federal NDP and liberals have created their own majority government without an election. That's what happens when you remove the masking mandates in the springtime. Here's Scott! I was wondering where he was going with that. That's what it is. It's springtime in the hammer and they're removing masks. Something's bound to happen. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Uh, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh, the usual su- uh, suspect of uh, stories today. Uh, still talking a lot about the fallout of the new NDP Liberal government. Uh, of course, uh, um, basically a majority until 2025, and uh, no real vote of confidence. That, that could all fall apart. Could all crumble. You never know. You never know how these things roll. Three years is uh, is an awfully long time, uh, but still lots of chat about that as the prime minister takes off to brussels do you think that this the timing of this merger or deal or whatever you want to call it uh do you think that's just happens to be a coincidence that uh, okay we'll take the heat for a day and then we're gone and uh off he is uh, on the world stage again uh solving the world problems which is great and i no, please uh i'm all behind that i'm all for that day 27 of the uh the uh crisis the russian invasion of ukraine and uh sorry 28 not 27 and uh more on that coming up a little later Uh, officially the u.s has come out and said that there are there is evidence of war crimes and vladimir putin uh guilty of those so certainly that takes the story to the next level we'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well obviously um and we're also hearing reports of something like fifteen thousand russian soldiers have been killed uh we'll try to get numbers on the other side as well to to clarify all this and keep it in perspective but um and and stories of uh, ukraine soldiers uh taking cities so try to get you some clarity on that coming up a little later on the massive story in ontario today is uh an electric vehicle battery plant which is happening in windsor four billion dollars combination from uh the feds and the province uh and this is huge news and it's hilarious to watch uh the um, uh, the industry minister uh, Champagne and and Premier Ford uh, uh, talk about this because they're just so absolutely elated. It's hilarious. Uh, you'd never realize they're on, as some would put it, uh, different teams when it comes to the political spectrum. But a great uh, a great example of the federal and the provincial government moving together on this and in four billion bucks. This is apparently the biggest the biggest investment there has been uh, in the auto industry. Here we're going to play some clips now of the premier and what he had to say in windsor earlier on lg energy solution and automaker slantis are joining forces to invest five billion dollars this is the largest automotive automotive manufacturing investment in the history of our province and i'm sure it's probably the history of our, our country as well minister and this is game-changing battery plant will help guarantee that Ontario is at the forefront of the electric vehicle revolution and ensure we remain a global leader in auto manufacturing.
What does that mean for jobs in the area? Here's the numbers. The state-of-the-art battery facility will supply Stellantis plants across North America and employ about 2,500 people. That's 2,500 steady, good-paying jobs for people and families right here in Windsor. There you have it, uh, Premier Doug Ford earlier today, along with um, Minister Champagne, the industry minister. And this is massive. I mean, especially when you consider, uh, you know, the other EV plants that uh, they've they've invested in uh, in the past year, and then 132 million uh, from each level of government for the Honda plant just uh, uh, last week, and then this one uh, totaling four billion dollars from both levels of government, the feds and the province, uh, along uh, you know for this LG Energy plant, uh, which will build batteries, which will hopefully complete the cycle, complete the circle of uh, what we're doing with our, our EV program in uh, Ontario. Obviously, automotive, a massive, massive employer in Ontario for like 100 years. So, uh, and there's going to be a massive transition from EVs to, or sorry, from internal combustion engine to EVs. I mean, assembly, uh, you know, there's changes there, but when you, you look at the internal workings of, of how these, these vehicles operate, it is a completely different process. So uh, if we can get at this from all different angles, that obviously serves uh, to be beneficial for not on, uh, not only Ontario, but also Canada. Uh, as you know, in the north, trying to put together deals to mine the minerals that actually go into the batteries. Then, of course, you manufacture the, uh, manufacture the batteries, you assemble the vehicles. Uh, hey, look at that. We're all of a sudden employing a whole pile of people uh, in an industry that's... Um, it certainly had some turbulent times in the last few years. So it would be great to to solidify uh, Ontario's position in the next generation uh, auto industry if we can keep going in this direction. We'll talk about that coming up uh, in the next break as well. Also, I'm uh, going to uh, be joined by Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. Talk about your staycations, and I'm sure there's an opinion or two uh, in regard to uh, the merger yesterday. Uh, Conservative House Leader uh, John Brassard is going to be joining us as well, uh, get his opinion, and then we'll head down to uh, the U.S. Get Reggie Chikini, our Washington correspondent, on to talk about Ukraine and the United States uh, officially saying it's obvious there are war crimes. It's all coming up on Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. What a great story. It's, it, it seems to be a win-win-win for everyone. It's 3.20. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. All right, automaker Stellantis and South Korean battery maker LG Energy Solution will build a large-scale electric vehicle battery plant in Windsor. This was announced uh, earlier. Premier Ford said uh, the province is set to build the cars for the future from start to finish. More than $5 billion invested announced uh, today with the uh, the largest Canadian automotive manufacturing history. Uh, The battery facility will supply Stellantis plants in North America and will employ about 2,500 people. Construction starting this year, hopefully finished by 2025, about the time of the next election. Uh, Ford touted the investment as part of the auto industries uh, or the auto strategy to establish uh, Ontario as a leader in each step of the electric vehicle manufacturing process from the minerals needed for the batteries right the way through to 
assembly. Obviously, uh, it sounds like a great plan. Will it work? Is it going to work? David Booth is with us, senior writer, postmediadriving.ca, and he is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, very well, in fact. It sounds like we're getting ahead of the curve here, David. What are your thoughts on this announcement today in, in Windsor regarding the battery plant? Well, it's huge news from every regard. I mean, for one thing, um, say, unlike the recent Honda Allison uh, news where uh, they're going to build hybrids, that was just keeping jobs. These are 2,500 new jobs, additional mm. jobs, and additional investment with a new plant. Uh, and that's really, really big news from, you know, just from the economics of the job standpoint. Uh, the fact that we've got a world-sized gigafactory battery plant, um, finally, as opposed to some of the smaller versions we've had, that will indeed uh, hopefully set a precedent, especially because, as you mentioned, we have lots of minerals, we have a qualified workforce, and we have fairly clean electricity, which helps them um, uh, reduce their uh, overall carbon footprint. So it's a win-win situation from many regards. So this is obviously sounds like a good fit. Tell us about uh, the Stellantis plants that they'll be supplying. So the, their batteries are made here and then shipped to this plant uh, in the U.S. What happens then? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to know. I mean, it, it, I mean, they've given us uh, some indication. Like they know we know it's uh, forty-five gigawatt hour ba- uh, battery. So that's actually ten percent of the uh, Stellantis projected. Um, total capacity worldwide, and about a quarter of what will uh, what will be made in all of North America. So that's sizable. Um, we know that um, they're going to make about two and a half million electric cars. We do know some of them. A large percentage of those will be um, Ram pickup trucks, uh, starting in about 2024, about the same time as when um, as when the uh, the uh, battery plant comes on online. So. Uh, I suspect most of it will go to there, but I mean, there, 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 are, there are so many different variables in this. I mean, uh, um, Stellantis has um, unveiled two different chemistries of batteries. They've got size of batteries everywhere from 40 kilowatt hours to 200 kilowatt hours. It's hard to know exactly where these all of the production will go. Will some of it end in some of the new plug-in hybrids that Jeep is selling? It, it it could end up uh, across a large uh, spectrum of automobiles. Uh, a lot of chatter a few weeks ago, especially with Joe Biden's Buy America policy, um, that you know Canada would be shut out of this, especially with the auto industry and Ontario. Obviously, this all jives with Joe Biden's Buy America. Not at all. In fact, let's thank the Lord for uh, Virginia Senator Joe Manchin for uh, derailing that Buy America plan. Because no. Uh, it's it, you know it's all in hindsight. Who cares now that we have the plant? Yeah. But it, it's hard to have seen how uh, this plant would have got a hundred percent affirmed had um, had that that plan gone through. I mean, you know, they would get punished for having the battery plant, uh, the batteries produced here and then going south of the border. So uh, that would be very iffy. Why here? Uh, you know, there's obviously no real uh, information on, on, on what this is all about or, or, or what money's really changing hands. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Or is this all just great investment in the future? I think this is great investment in the future. Let's not have Canadian insecurity uh, put us down too far. Um, you know, we have a really great workforce. 
Um, we, as you mentioned, we have the minerals. Um, uh, we, we also have uh, clean electricity, not as clean as Quebec. In fact, I'd, I'd guess that there was quite a competition um, between Quebec and Ontario for getting this, and I suspect that the difference was uh, Stellantis's familiarity and love of its production in Windsor, as opposed to trying to start something new elsewhere. Because you know, uh, Quebec has tons of cheap and completely green electricity, which is really important to the uh, battery production. The other thing you need to remember is that um, battery plants need to be at least somewhat close to where they're going, because batteries, after they're put together, are huge and very heavy. So as much as you might save in one regard, you've got to be cognizant also of the uh, transportation charges. Obviously, lots of chatter of jobs to the Windsor area because and new, and new jobs, as you pointed out. What about spin-off industry here, David? What about you know just the fact this is coming? What it does for other business? Well, I mean, the traditional um, number is somewhere between four and six spin-off jobs for every job you create right there, right? But that's um, um, the old internal combustion days. Right. Uh, the the part that nobody wants to say out loud right now is that down the road, um, if cars really do go all electric, it'll take fewer people to build the same number of cars overall, right. whether that's in the manufacturing plant itself or whether that's in ancillary parts supply, there'll be fewer people needed. That's just uh, the reality of it. So while we're building both electric and gasoline and scaling up one while the other hasn't quite fallen off the roof, this is all to the positive side. Uh, eventually, there will be few, fewer uh, auto parts jobs as a result of electrification. But, I mean, that's the way those balls, balls bounce, right? It's just that's progress, I guess. Uh, yeah. David Booth with us, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca. Big news for Windsor, Ontario, and Canada. $4 billion invested in a electric vehicle battery plant there. David, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Staycation, yeah, you know, uh, well, we know what's happening with travel. As of April 1st, things opening up more. Uh, that's certainly with air travel and such. But what happens if you're staying closer to home and, and taking in the great uh, Ontario attractions and such? Uh, there is a, stayca- a staycation tax credit, uh, which you can uh, take advantage of to help you uh, ease back into real life uh, coming up this summer. Uh, let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glambrook, uh, to talk about this and just politics in general, because it might be fun. Donna, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I am. It's so nice to be back to some sort of uh, normal life with the removal of masks on Monday, back in the legislature, working hard. And and now we have something hopefully a lot of people will be able to enjoy this staycation tax credit and get out and experience Ontario because we really do have a, a phenomenal province, a wonderful province and a lot to discover. Uh, that is absolutely correct. But f- yeah. Before we get to that, I, I got to ask you about uh, just your thoughts on politics in the last 24 hours. Uh, is, is anybody banging on your guys' door here at the uh, Ontario Conservative Party to ask for advice for the federal conservatives who seem to be lost at this point? And now we have an NDP liberal government. What are your thoughts? I know it's two different uh, kettles of fish. You got the province and the feds. But, but what, are your th- what are your thoughts as you sit back and watch all this? 
Well, it's interesting that, that Jagmeet and Justin decided to form this coalition government. It's also interesting that it hasn't really been truly called a coalition government, but that's exactly what it is. And is this what uh, Canadians wanted? Well, apparently you need You're, someone in the caucus for it to be that, I guess. Well, that's according to them. I've never heard that before. And a, a cabinet, I think they needed an NDP representative in cabinet. But right. the reality is they're working together. You're going to see our government shift even further to the left. And I think that's terrifying. I am a conservative, a fiscal conservative, however. But if we go any further, especially coming out of COVID, any further to the left, I don't know how we will ever dig out of the hole that this current liberal government has has uh, dug and has left us with this incredible mountain of debt. Um, it's going to be interesting because it, it, on the provincial front, neither Stephen Del Duca nor Andrea Horvath ruled out themselves forming a coalition government. So it's, yeah, they it's seem to be quite excited about it. Mm-hmm, it I know, but. I think as, as conservatives, we will benefit from that because people want uh, somebody who has a steady hand and, and is thinking more fiscally responsibly as we move out of COVID and, and start to see economic recovery take root. We had a huge announcement this morning, of course, with the battery plant, the lithium plant up in Windsor. Uh, our economy is starting to boom. And the last thing we need is another socialist government that will just you know, throw more uh, unreasonable projects at uh, taxpayers and simply increase our debt for the sake of spending money. All right, last question about the feds and then we'll move on. Uh, that being said, a, a lot of people are really disappointed in the federal conservative party. Uh, many are saying that, you know, the only reason we're seeing happen what we're seeing happen is because there is no strong opposition. It seems, you know, when, when tough uh, times are coming, they're looking for what en- end of the hammer to use and, you know, looking for leaders, looking for that and just seem to not be able to get their own act together. What are your thoughts and, you know, of those that are frustrated that there isn't some sort of uh, better opposition being mounted? Well, I think there will be a better opposition once we have a leader, a new leader. There are some some uh, compelling candidates. I'm not sure who I'm even going to support yet, but uh, in Hamilton, Pierre Polyev is coming this weekend to Hamilton. I want to hear what he has to say. I think Jean Charest has, uh, has an interesting background and could, could be a good leader for, um, for Canada. And Patrick Brown has the ability to organize on the ground. Those are three of the front runners. And I think once we do get a leader, often, whether it's a nomination race or a leadership race, you have a lot of internal fighting. And it it isn't good for the parties. But once they uh, choose the candidate or the leader, people tend to get behind them and and they can move forward. So once it will change, and I do believe you will see uh, the stupidity of this, the outrageous um, idea of a coalition government that has now been formed to take us to 2025. I think you'll see uh, that uh, being uh, brought to light with somebody who is truly the, the, the leader, the new leader of the party. Um, I want to keep going, but we got to stop. What about your uh, staycation? <laughs> oh, one more question. One more. Uh, okay. Are you surprised? Are you surprised that so many people like this is still six months out for uh, the conservatives, federal conservatives to choose a new leader? I remember people saying, oh, my goodness, that's like a, a lifetime away until this announcement came. Um, are you surprised so many people are interested in the leadership race with it being so far out? No, I've been knocking on doors for my candidacy, my re-election coming up in June. And the interesting thing is most people don't 
separate the different levels of government. And there's a lot of outrage with Justin Trudeau. So there may be interest in the conservative leadership race because they want a credible leader to uh, replace Justin Trudeau. That's my sense. That's what I'm getting at the door. Um, and I and it was not unlike what I heard when Kathleen Wynne was in the last weeks of her reign. So I don't think that this coalition is actually going to make him more um, appealing to centrist and conservative voters. And I'm not sure it's going to help him secure a majority government if Trudeau truly even decides to run again. There's always speculation that he may not. This may be his last his last term. But I think that uh, people are really angry with him. And this isn't going to help. All right, staycation. How do we qualify for this? Uh, what does it mean? It sounds like if I go someplace like, uh, let's say I go to Niagara Falls for the weekend and, and have a great time, I can write it off. How does this work? Absolutely, you can. So we're asking, and it's really to help one of the hardest hit sectors through COVID, and that was the hospitality industry. And this is a way of getting people to spend their money in Ontario when they're looking to go on a bit of a vacation or take the kids out or just go for dinner. Keep your receipts and submit them with your tax form. And individuals can get anywhere from $200 to $1,000 if they have the expenses to show. And it's a 20% uh, return on their expenses and families are eligible for up to $2,000. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice perk to, keep, to encourage people to stay home, stay in Ontario, spend your money, have a lot of fun. And there really is a lot to see. I, I grew up in northern Ontario and I spent a lot of time on the train back and forth. Mm. And I, I, I worked in eastern Ontario in the Ottawa region. We have a beautiful, beautiful province. And if you haven't yet explored it, perhaps you may not want to drive. But if you haven't explored it, I would encourage you to. We have a lot of uh, wonderful tourist attractions, even around the Hamilton area, days drive away and a couple hours drive away. And, and spend your money there. Support local businesses. Let's get the economy moving again. And, and then save your receipts and you'll get a big tax credit at the end of the year there you go and absolutely bang on with the whole thing about ontario no matter which way you go north or east or west it is an experience either way just ask an american they'll tell you uh, yes. donna thanks so much for the time donna skelly mpp flambrough glanbrook and talking about the statecation tax credit keep your receipts for next year donna thanks for the time be well anytime when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know what is happening in Ukraine, a day 28 of the Russian invasion of, although we are certainly hearing news that uh, Ukraine forces are, again, continuing uh, to hold key positions and even take back some portions of cities. We'll try to get more of an update on that coming up a little later on. Uh, but obviously, the humanitarian effort has been uh, astronomical, to say the least, whether it's people here or people in and around the Ukraine bordering states and such that have taken them in, the uh, millions of refugees and such. Uh, the UN United Nations World Food Program has mobilized food supplies uh, to provide enough food for assistance to 3 million inside Ukraine for a month. They're putting in place 
Highway Systems for delivery. Uh, the encircled city of Mariupol is running out of its latest reserves of uh, food and water. No humanitarian aid has been allowed to get in uh, for more than a couple of weeks. Uh, the World Food Program has uh, pre-positioned bulk food, wheat, flour for bakeries uh, in areas uh, for distribution by partners and city administration. You can imagine, you know, getting the the, the product is one thing, uh, getting it there is another, and then getting it to the people who need it is probably the biggest challenge. Let's bring in Judy Marshall, Canadian spokesperson for the UN's World Food Program. She's based right here in Hamilton and is with us now julie thanks for the time i hope you're well thank you thanks for having me uh we're at day 28 of this now julie many thought uh, many didn't think it would go on this long obviously it has and that's due to the the great courage of the ukrainian uh people and such how has this challenge changed over the last 28 days well, obviously, it's just getting worse and worse. What we're seeing is that existing food systems and food chains are really being destroyed. So commercial food um, can't get into the supermarkets. We can't reach the cities that have been encircled and besieged. So that's where the hungry people are. So our job at WFP is to almost replace that that chain of food. So what we're doing is we're setting up three bases inside Ukraine, shipping food into those cities and pre-positioning that food ready to supply and organize humanitarian convoys into the, the areas that are really affected most, you know, where people just have run out of food and food and water. So that's what we're doing inside Ukraine. How does it get from those points into where it needs to be? Well, what we will be doing is we'll be setting up interagency UN convoys into uh, the places where it's needed. So what we do there is we make sure that we have assurances from both sides to make sure that we can get that food in safely, to make sure our drivers are safe, our staff are safe, and our partners who are picking up the food and the beneficiaries on the other side are all safe to do that. You know, this is something that's going to be extremely difficult to do. We've done it before. We work in 80 different countries around the world, including places like Yemen, South Sudan and Syria. So we know how to do this. But this is a particularly difficult situation that we're in. And why is that so? And and let me preface that. Uh, Obviously, many attacks we're hearing of against civilian and even aid workers that are being targeted. Yeah, so it really is just a very difficult situation on the ground. Um, So what we intend to do is just make sure that we're ready so that when we have an opening, we can get food in where it's needed. There are a number of countries, sorry, cities where we have started bringing food in either in form of rations, high energy biscuits, bread or bread flour, where we're able to supply bakeries so that they can produce their own bread. So we're on the ground. We're doing the job right now, but we are looking for safe access into places like Maripol to make sure that we can get some food to these people. Um, we're all experiencing through obviously this two-year uh, global pandemic and now this terrible uh, conflict, this terrible invasion in Ukraine, and we're seeing how that with supply chain issues making it difficult and food prices going up. How does how does rising food prices, which affect all of us, how does that affect the World Food Program? Well, first of all, Ukraine and Russia account for around thirty percent of wheat exports. So that is basically on hold right now. So we're 
just like everybody else are looking for, you know, where can we get on our wheat from? So, you know, any distribution, any, sorry, disruption in distribution or supply chains is going to have an effect on food prices as well as fuel prices because fuel comes from there as mm. well. So it's hitting us hard. It's hitting countries that import food, um, places like Yemen who import around 22% of their wheat from Ukraine or Lebanon where they import 50% of their wheat. So they're going to have, you know, rising food prices, and but people are already hungry there now. And for WFP, we'll be having more people that we need to feed, but it's also hitting us hard in the sense that it's going to cost us more money um, to actually reach people. And what we've calculated is since 2019 to today, our food prices are going up around 70, sorry, $70 million per month. That's millions of people we could have fed, but because prices are going up, it's becoming more and more challenging for us. Hmm. So Higher prices. Like has gone up, yeah, I mean, wheat has gone up around 24% since, um, the, since February now to March. That's huge. That's going to have an impact on prices here in Canada, but it's really going to hit home for you know, hunger spots around the world. Obviously, higher prices, uh, less mouths fed. Uh, how can Hamiltonians help? What can we do here to help? Well, the, the best thing that you can do for the World Food Program is if you can donate to us directly. So you can either go to WFP.org and don donate what you can, or you can download an app called Share the Meal. And you can just share one meal with a family in Ukraine or in any other parts of the world. And it's really easy to do and it's quick. And what WFP will do is we're trying to purchase our food either inside Ukraine if possible or as near to the region. And we often purchase from smallholder farmers so that we can help them as well. So we're just buying food locally is absolutely the best way to go and more effective and efficient way to go as well. So any donations are welcome. Julie Marshall has been with us, Canadian spokesperson for the United Nations World Food Program. You are sorry, WFP.org to find out more. WFP.org to find out more. Julie, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. It's amazing how uh, opinions change. It, it really is. And and uh, I've said this a couple of times, but I've loved uh, talking to the various research and pollster uh, uh, agencies and, and businesses that do this uh, for a living over the course of the global pandemic. It's always fun just with politics anyway. But then uh, the pandemic, it's been fascinating to watch. I, maybe fun is the wrong word. Uh, fascinating to see people's uh, perception change uh, almost immediately and and what our priorities are, uh, especially when it comes to our families. And a survey uh, that was conducted for Global News from Ipsos found that 6 in 10 Canadians say they are concerned they may not have enough money to feed their families. What's interesting and how this has changed is that figure is up 16 percentage points from a similar poll conducted back in November when the inflation rate stood at 4.7%. What does it all mean? Let's bring in Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now, Sean, thanks for the time as always. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. And I, as I mentioned before, uh, especially through the pandemic, it's been fascinating to see priorities change uh, with Canadians and in sometimes a relatively short period of time. 
Yeah, we started polling uh, on uh, inflation and cost of living back in uh, October, November, when the federal parliament was uh, resuming following the the election, and we found that uh, cost of living was was rising in terms of an issue of concern, and at the time. 50, uh, 44% of Canadians were concerned about feeding their family. That's now up to 60%, uh, as you said. Perhaps even more concerning is that the proportion of parents with kids in the household that are worried about being able to put food on the table is uh, 68%, so two-thirds. Uh, that's a quite a startling statistic. Um, you know, it's interesting when uh, you look at what has gone up and you're thinking housing, energy, food, there's, I mean, you're pretty much hitting the main staples for the average family here. Yeah, it's a constant reminder when you're uh, driving through every major intersection with a gas station and you look up and the yeah. price of a liter is close to $2. And, and so it's perhaps no wonder that... Um, you know, a majority of Canadians here, 68%, are worried that they might not be able to uh, afford gasoline. Uh, 60%, as you said, uh, might not have enough money to feed their family. And 85% are just concerned that everything is going to become uh, become less affordable for them. So a constant reminder, hitting people in their pocketbooks. And, of course, they're going to be turning to the provincial government and federal government for some relief. Are, do you think this is going to be enough? And again, we've seen this happen with uh, various issues. Climate change is a good example, uh, you know, which can go up or down depending upon, again, the other crisis or issues of the day. Do you think this will, will see a change in policy as a result of these numbers? Well, I think it, it will likely have to. Um, you know, Canadians are uh, being pinched right now by a number of things, right? There is COVID fatigue. Uh, there are concerns about high oil and gas prices that are perhaps a result of what's happening in Ukraine, which is also a concerning uh, situation for Canadians. So all of these th- things are coming to a head, and, and, and Canadians are, uh, are strapped for cash as a result. There's a big difference between the macroeconomics, what the economists have been telling us has been happening, which is generally strong growth, uh, low unemployment rates, and what people are feeling from a microeconomics uh, standpoint, what's happening in their own house, struggling to fill the car, struggling to put food on the table. And now in this most recent polling, we see that 54% say that they might not be able to afford a holiday this summer. Well, you know, mm. you can say boo-hoo, uh, that's, a, that's a luxury, not a necessity. But remember, they probably didn't get one last year or the yeah. year before either. And our yeah. mental health yeah. it really requires it. That's a very, very valid point, Sean, that's for sure. Um, now, it'll be fascinating to see what these numbers are even a month from now uh, after it's, it sinks in about the NDP liberal uh, merger or deal or whatever it is that they've come up with um, because what the opposition is saying, and, and although it looks like it's coming with a grocery list of things and, and election promises and such, uh, that it's going to cost a lot of money. So how how is all this going to balance out if this is such a major concern for Canadians, yet it appears the situation we find ourselves in with the NDP and the Liberals uh, is going to equal more cost. Yeah, well, we know that 24% of Canadians say that they're completely out of money. There's no way that they can absorb more for household necessities. So uh, those quarter of Canadians, which is, you know, 8 million people or adults, it's a, it's a lot of people, will be looking to this sort of newly formed, can't call it a coalition, but agreement between the NDP yeah. and Liberals 
for some relief, whether it comes in, in some of the ideas, dental care, housing, we know, is a serious um, uh, source of anxiety for Canadians because renting is becoming increasingly expensive and, you know, owning a home is, is out of reach for many people at this stage. Um, it is time for some policy intervention to help things become more affordable for Canadians. The, the government of Quebec is sending out checks of $500 uh, for, for lower-income people. I don't know whether, you know, if that's too blunt of an instrument or if that helps the right people, but certainly here in Ontario and, and across the country, Canadians will be looking to their leaders for some solutions. Do you think there's too much on the table right now to focus on this? Well, certainly there are uh, competing priorities, let's say, uh, competing priorities with with COVID management, with the situation in Ukraine. Uh, But I think this, you know, of all of the things that that matter to Canadians, we see COVID going down the list as it becomes endemic. Uh, Canadians rarely vote on matters of foreign affairs. Uh, They just trust our leaders to sort of deal with it in the most appropriate manner. But what they do vote on is pocketbook issues. So politicians would do well to pay attention to these issues uh, because these are the ones that drive votes, not those other things. Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public uh, Public Affairs. Six and Canadians concerned they may not have enough money to feed their families uh, up from just November. Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Back then... This parliament saw me as someone new on the world stage. We got to work tackling progressive issues, building the things that we thought mattered. We could see that something was lurking off on the horizon, something shadowy, something that was threatening. We didn't look close enough. I don't know. One word. Crimea. Um... But I guess hindsight's 2020, isn't it? That is the Prime Minister earlier today speaking to uh, the European Parliament in regard to, obviously, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, what is happening in Brussels, a NATO summit uh, with the group getting together, trying to figure out what the next plan is? However, when we've decided that uh, it's best not to cross any NATO borders, theoretically starting World War III and uh, implementing more and more and more sanctions, really, what else can be done what can be accomplished in Brussels. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and Monk School at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Good to be with you again. Uh, thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate this. Obviously, Jack, they've talked a lot about sanctions. We've talked about the oligarchs, uh, and we certainly know the debate has been going on for, what, 29 days now, sorry, 28 days of, of what NATO can do and crossing that border and, and triggering World War Three. So really, what's the objective here? What can NATO and, and this summit accomplish? Well, first of all, I think they plan to dramatize the uh, the dispatch of some new uh, multinational battle groups to reinforce NATO's eastern flank and uh, and and help uh, help reinforce the deterrent effect of NATO forces there. Also, they may be considering ways of of dealing with the fact that uh, the first stage of this conflict has really ended. Uh, Putin gambled on a fairly quick and probably fairly bloodless victory. It doesn't look as if that's in the cards by any stretch of the imagination. And what he's probably going to switch to now, 
now that he now that he has uh, failed to take any of the major cities is simply pounding the uh, the crap out of these cities pardon my language and uh, and uh, and inflicting as much damage as he can hoping to break the morale of the inhabitants this this could mean a a somewhat bloodier nastier more brutal conflict than we've uh, already seen uh, obviously, Ukraine shows no sign of, of stepping back at this time. We're hearing of casualties for Russian soldiers in and around the 15,000 mark. What about Ukraine casualties? And we're also hearing that they're reclaiming some areas. How is this going? Well, it's going very badly for uh, for Putin. As I say, he'd, uh, he'd gambled on a fairly quick, easy victory, and he hasn't been able to secure any of the major cities. He's struggling even around uh, Mariupol, where there is uh, a possibility of trying to open a, a humanitarian corridor to, uh, to, dis- to, to, to distribute aid and, and evacuate people. But, but uh, without getting involved in the combat, that's, uh, there's been some speculation that that may be on the, uh, on the agenda in Brussels. The Prime Minister was talking about this, 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 uh, this uh, obviously uh, enemy that was lurking in the darkness, and we have a different view of this now. Um, what is the view of, you know, what we've seen happen in Ukraine with the Russian invasion comparing to what happened with Crimea when it was obviously much easier? Well, it, it, uh, it was much easier in Crimea. Uh, Putin has, among other things, managed to uh, uh, alienate what uh, most of what uh, pro-Russian sentiment there was in Ukraine, aside from the very hardest, hardcore uh, Russian speakers. And he's uh, he's now in a position where he's uh, he's got to either uh, either increase the brutality of the of, of the conflict or accept a prolonged stalemate. So how is Putin viewing what's happening in Brussels? Uh, Obviously, it seems to be a stalemate, uh, and obviously NATO is stronger than ever. What's his reaction to these talks going on, even though obviously options are limited? Options are limited, and it's hard to speculate as to to how his mind works, not least because he's uh, he's surrounded by yes-men who are only telling him what he wants to hear. My, my suspicion is that another part of what's going on at Brussels is the attempt to uh, to reinforce the message that he really needs to back down from this irresponsible talk about uh, about the possibility of escalation to nuclear hostilities. And the the harder a line that uh, that NATO takes, the more effective that's likely to be. Unless Putin is absolutely barking mad, he's not going to, to want to uh, court nuclear hostilities when the uh, when the uh, the deterrent uh, effect of uh, of NATO's uh, rhetoric and actions has uh, has kicked in, Jack, the fact that this has dragged out as long as it has, and we're at day twenty eight now, has he lost? Uh, well, some are saying he's lost. I think it's premature to uh, to conclude that he's lost. He's he's certainly lost the first stage of the war. Uh, what does that mean? So uh, does he have enough to launch a second stage other than, you know, and does that mean bringing out the nukes? Well, he's, sh- he's short on men. He's short on material. It doesn't necessarily mean bringing out the nukes, but it does mean uh, increasing the brutality with which he's pounding the cities. And that is, uh, is I think, one of the reasons that the Prime Minister, in his speech to the European Parliament, said that the cost to Putin has to be absolutely ruinous. We want to reinforce the message that, um, 
that in fact it will be ruinous and that unless Putin is uh, is able to uh, uh, see reason, the uh, the cost to him and to Russia as a whole will be very high. Are NATO leaders working on an off-ramp for Putin in Brussels? Well, they, uh, they, there, there, there was talk uh, last week when the, uh, the bilateral talks were, were going on that there might be some effort to cobble together a solution in which, uh, in which uh, the Ukrainians would, uh, would basically admit that there was little likelihood of their joining NATO anytime soon and that uh, Putin might settle for uh, perhaps a very small chunk of a loaf uh, territorially. I would be surprised if that's happening now. I think it's just as likely that he's trying to that he was trying to string us out with the inconclusive uh, talks. So does he just keep Putin keep this going uh, as long as he can, and uh, you know, if he doesn't win, just inflict as much damage as he possibly can? He's bloody minded enough to do that. And how does this play back in Russia, especially if they say there's 15,000 soldiers? And do we know Ukrainian uh, casualties at all? I haven't seen any reliable Ukrainian figures uh, that are up to date, but I'm sure, I'm sure they're substantial. And, of course, we're all aware of the humanitarian catastrophe of the, uh, of the refugees and the internally displaced persons in Ukraine. But uh, uh, this is not playing well with uh, Putin's domestic audience. That's why he's pushing for more repressive measures domestically. And it's why we've got these, uh, at, at great risk to themselves, I might add, these uh, protesters taking to uh, the streets of major Russian cities protesting uh, Russian events. This is not going to wear well with the Russian population, especially once the sanctions really, really bite, especially once uh, more conscripts are called up or the term of existing conscripts is lengthened and it becomes clear just how uh, bloody a conflict this has turned out to be. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity, in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We're uh, we're going to keep talking about this. Let's bring in Conservative House Leader John Brassard. He is with us now. Uh, John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, uh, yeah, my pleasure, Scott. Good to speak to you again. How much of a surprise was this to uh, the federal conservatives when you heard this coming down? Well, it was a big surprise, actually. Uh, what's not surprising is that this was probably happening for months that they were had been negotiating. But I found out about it uh, around 7.30 on Monday night, and then we were able to confirm that there were a couple of caucus meetings going on at both the Liberal and NDP level. There was a cabinet meeting as well. And then uh, we heard that at 9 o'clock the following morning, the prime minister was going to come out and announce his, uh, his secret deal with the NDP. Uh, uh, we certainly know, and I can imagine what your reaction is. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, get, I'll ask you for that, and you can get that off your chest. Then I'll ask you how this affects the leadership race. <laughs> well, the uh, you know, obviously, I mean, you mentioned it. Uh, we were just at the polls in September, six hundred and sixty million dollar election that nobody wanted, while uh, BC was burning and Afghanistan was falling because the prime minister wanted desperately wanted a majority government for. Uh, his own reason, and when Canadians sent him back with a minority, and I'll remind you, Scott, that they voted 18%, 82% of Canadians didn't vote for the NDP, uh, when he was sent back with his tail
tail between his legs uh, in a minority situation. I guess he figured the best uh, step to take was to buy one and join in partnership or coalition with the NDP. The uh, you know look, I know that the Liberals have couched this in many ways, and the NDP has couched this in a supply uh, confidence uh, agreement. Uh, this is effectively a coalition, and if you look at the terms of of what they've agreed to, including uh, you know regular meetings between ministers, regular meetings between House leaders and whips, and regular meetings between the leaders, uh, a new committee that's being formed, the fact that uh, the NDP will inform the Liberals uh, on committee anytime uh, there's a sense that their work will be impeded, uh, which is an unbelievable word to use, uh, that uh, they're going to let them know. So this is effectively a coalition government uh, when Canadians voted for a minority Liberal government just six months ago. Yeah, and I guess all those committees are pretty much out the window at this point. How does this affect the Conservative leadership race? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, it buys a little bit of time, and whoever wins, whoever he or she may be, will have time to, uh, you know, work to hold the government to account. Uh, you know, obviously, in my situation as gov- as opposition house leader, I have to stay neutral in this, but I expect that it's going to provide uh, the new leader a little more time to uh, to be better known across the country. Uh, but I do want to go back to the committee work, which you mentioned, because it does effectively neuter com- committees. Uh, you know, the, the NDP has now given the Liberals a majority on committee in a minority situation. So mm-hmm. that means that the We Charity scandal, the SNC scandal, uh, the committee's ability to produce documents like they did in the Winnipeg Lab scandal has effectively been neutered now. So the issue of transparency and accountability is gone for the next three and a half years, and the power of those committees have been neutralized. All right, let's go to the other side of this coin, uh, John. Uh, Many are upset with the Conservatives, and that is because there's so much time, so much BS, and so much infighting, uh, swapping out leaders, doing this, doing that, that the Conservatives have been neutered themselves, have neutered themselves in their inability to mount a strong opposition. Some saying this may not have even happened if you guys had your act together. What do you say to that kind of criticism? Well, I think it. I think it would have happened no matter what, because clearly Justin Trudeau wanted to buy a majority. But Scott, in terms of you know where we're at, we've got 119 members in our caucus in the House of Commons. We were providing an effective opposition. Uh, you know, leadership race notwithstanding, what's going on with that? That's just part of the natural evolution of you know party politics. Uh, leaders come and go. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's up to the grassroots movement to select a leader. I can tell you from my standpoint, I'm sitting in West Block, just two floors up from the House of Commons right now, that Conservatives have been an effective opposition. We were an effective opposition under uh, Aaron O'Toole, and we continue to be under our interim leader, uh, Candace Bergen. So, you know, that effectiveness perhaps... Uh, you know, was uncomfortable for Justin Trudeau. You know, like, and, and this is this is a guy who doesn't want an opposition. He wants an audience, Scott. That's what he yes. wants. And so, uh, you know, his ability to uh, to make this backroom deal with the NDP gives him exactly what he wants, and that's full, unfettered power uh, for the next three and a half years. And we're going to continue to do our job. And I expect our new leader, when they're selected in September, will come in and continue to do the job. I mean, we are Her Majesty's official opposition. That's our job is to is to hold the government to account and uh, that 
that uh, has effectively been neutered at this point, at least at the committee level. But we're going to use every every tool and every tactic that we can to continue to hold this uh, NDP Liberal coalition to account. Conservative House Leader John Brassard on uh, what went down yesterday with the agreement deal, whatever you want to call it, between uh, the NDP and the Liberals. John, thank you for the it's time. Much appreciated. It's, all right, Scott. It's a <laughs> hey, I thought, wait a sec, John. John let's talk about yeah. that. Hang a sec. Have you got a sec? Yeah. So apparently yeah. it's not a coalition because there is nobody in the cabinet from the NDP. But if you look at, if you look at the agreement, Scott, the regular meetings that are going to happen, the NDP will have access to government ministers, government senior advisors, senior civil servants that the official opposition nor the third party block NDP will not have. They will have mm. that, those lines of communication open. So if that doesn't uh, constitute a coalition, I know, I know by its definition, by not having a minister, etc., but they will have access to information that we as the official opposition nor the Bloc Québécois will have. So they're effectively in a coalition. Yeah, that's a good point. Conservative time. House Leader John Broussard with us. John, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, NATO world leaders uh, meeting in Brussels and uh, trying to find a way forward uh, after uh, 28 days of conflict with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And oddly enough, uh, as well, the U.S. uh, reinforcing what others are talking about and said that Russia uh, certainly looks guilty of war crimes. What does that all mean? Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global news he is with us now reggie thanks for the time i hope you're doing well good afternoon uh reggie obviously we've talked about uh sanctions and and oligarchs and and we certainly know we can't cross a nato border uh that will trigger world war three what's the objective of brussels what else can these leaders do that they haven't already done well, I mean, look, there's a couple of uh, objectives here when it comes to these NATO leaders getting together. Uh, and number one, it is to show a wall of Western strength and that uh, there is no divide that has been formed despite uh, repeated attempts by uh, Russia to try and drive some kind of wedge either through Eastern and Western Europe or Western Europe uh, and the United States. Uh, so to have the group meeting in a kind of extraordinary fashion uh, is another signal towards Russia that they are going to meet a person persistent force. Uh, and, and you're right, there have been repeated uh, uh, kind of rounds of sanctions placed on on Russians, on Vladimir Putin, on entities throughout the country. Uh, and we are likely going to see more sanctions put in place because, well, they may not be having a direct impact uh, on this kind of operation that we're seeing underway in Ukraine. It is having an impact now on the average Russian uh, around the country which is leading to dissent, which is leading to a crackdown on that dissent. Uh, But Western leaders think that these sanctions are having an impact. The U.S. government uh, today formally announcing that uh, members of Russian forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. The significance of this. Well, I mean, look, President Biden, within the last few days, made public comments to say that Vladimir Putin was acting like a war criminal. And it was something that struck a nerve in the Kremlin uh, because there were uh, 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 kind of vague outward threats that Russia would cut off ties with the United States. And that's something that didn't even happen during the Cold War. So with uh, with the U.S. government now saying, look, we've gone through the assessments, we've gone through the public uh, the, the public sourced information, the intelligence source information. They now believe that uh, that Russian forces are carrying out war crimes. They said that they would participate in an international criminal court investigation. This lends credence to that investigation. What's important, though, Scott, is uh, 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 Russia 
is not a part of the International Criminal Court. So it's not Hmm. clear if Moscow would participate in this, but it does show that there again is a Western alliance when they view what is happening in Ukraine. Is this highly symbolic then? Is Is it like they can go after him now? Well, they can't go after him. Uh, and, and even with the ICC, you know, they would mm-hmm. have to find somebody, place them under arrest, you know, find the defendant, place them under arrest and bring them in for uh, for, for a trial in order for uh, for any kind of conviction to come from that. But, uh, yeah, there is symbolism here that the United States is calling out Vladimir Putin, whether that's going to be something that constitutes another you know, line in the sand that's crossed is something that we'll have to see uh, play out over the next couple of hours. But it simply, again, shows that there is this uh, attempt to stand in lockstep with your European countries uh, to push back on what they see is a growing, unstable authoritarian leader in Moscow. Any more information on casualties, Reggie? And by that, I mean, I mean, we were, we're hearing that uh, there could be up to 15,000 Russian troops that have lost their lives. We're not hearing a lot about Ukrainian uh, casualties or, or, or any uh, of those fighting there. Is there any clarity to be had? I mean, you know, the information is difficult to come by, and that's because, A, there are far fewer monitors on the ground now just because the situation is so volatile. Ukrainian defense officials do say that the number of of civilians that have been killed is in and around 1,000. It's hard to gauge whether or not that is an accurate number, especially given the indiscriminate shelling that's really been taking place over eastern Ukraine for the last uh, several days. Uh, the mayor of Kiev says uh, in, in the city center alone uh, and including its suburbs, that number is 264. That includes four kids. What's, uh, what is kind of a remarkable thing to look at here, though, is, well, they're saying a thousand civilians. It's unclear uh, you know, what the number of military troops are. That number of military troops, according to NATO, is 10,000 and could be significantly higher than 10,000, already outdoing the number of deaths that Russia suffered uh, in, you know, in, in previous wars. But also works out to, uh, you know, roughly five or 10 percent of the number of troops that had been stationed around Ukraine, which, again, has the West questioning whether or not there's actual leadership trying to push these forces forward. How is this playing in the U.S. with its citizenry? Is how much attention is it getting there? Still getting a lot of attention. I mean, this is the top story. It's the front page. Uh, it is it is being driven into the American household because, again, remember, the war is having an impact when it comes to inflation and when it comes to yeah. um, uh, the rising prices of gas around the United States. But ultimately, uh, there is still support here for what President Biden is doing. Republicans are actively working to try and get more money, more aid uh, with Democrats into uh, Ukraine, including uh, more weaponry to push back on things like biological and chemical weapon Uh, attacks uh, in Ukraine. So there is support for what President Biden is doing. His popularity numbers have not taken a hit. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Watch Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. In regard to uh, the war and obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine, initially this was sold by Russia that obviously Ukraine was thinking of joining NATO. This is encroaching on uh, Russia and such. They felt that Russia was a threat and that people there needed liberated and uh, off Russia went uh, to invade. Uh, we've had Matthew Light on before, and he brought to our attention a note that uh, he and a series of academics have written. Uh, academics on 
war in Ukraine, misconceptions, and how it affects Canada. Uh, going on to say that a group of us wanted to share this letter with Canadians, public views of, uh, of many in our scholarly community on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In particularly, we want to rebuke the widespread view that the war began because of Ukraine's interest in joining NATO. That's false. And the complacency among some people in Canada about the consequences of a Russian victory, which uh, would be a disaster for this country. Matthew Light is with us now, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, a Russian, uh, European and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Good evening. So uh, am I correct in this uh, analogy that uh, Russia is using the excuse that uh, that Ukraine was trying to encroach and join NATO and the border's getting smaller, therefore we have to defend ourselves? Is that the sale that Russia is trying to make? Um, that is what they've been saying. I think that even people who might have given that some credence before have been horrified by the invasion. But nonetheless, we did think it was important, um, those of us who signed this letter of 100 Canadian scholars, to... Uh, bring to the Canadian public's attention why we think that, that that is simply wrong. And there are a number of points that we would make. Um, one is that it's clear from Russia's behavior over the years that what it really minds about Ukraine is that Ukraine is independent and, and makes its own decisions. And that doesn't just involve um, issues of defense and security cooperation, such as joining an alliance like NATO, but even something like, like trade. So in 2014, um, Ukraine was considering signing a free trade agreement with the European Union, and Russia um, basically told it that was unacceptable. And when the dictator of Ukraine tried to cancel that agreement, that was what set off the protest that led to um, the revolution that resulted in a democratic transition in Ukraine, as well as the Russian invasion. So it's clear from the sequence that um, what bothers Russia is not um, the fact that Ukraine might at some point in the future join NATO, but just that it's behaving like a, an independent country that makes its own decisions. Uh, uh, President, Z- sorry, go ahead. Well, I would just I would just add that um, it's also relevant to know that that Ukraine has applied to join NATO, but in 2008, its application was basically shelved indefinitely. So there is no prospect of Ukraine joining NATO anytime in the near future, and Russia knows that. And President Zelensky, Ukraine President Zelensky, said this last week uh, that they were not interested in joining NATO. So was that significant? Or as you say, is that old news? Well, I think that Zelensky is as trying as any person of conscience would in the situation to reach an agreement with Russia to to end bloodshed um, that's devastating his country while also preserving his country's independence. So um, what some analysts have suggested is that that is something he can offer that would allow Russia to to end the war with sort of um, while, while, while saving face. Um, at the same time, it appears that Russia is also demanding that Ukraine acknowledge or, or acquiesce in the, the seizure by Russia of several parts of Ukraine. So the Crimean Peninsula, as well as um, some areas of eastern Ukraine, like the Donbass region. And that, mm-hmm. of course, Zelensky has refused to do. So um, there again, we see that you know, it's it's for Russia. NATO is not the real reason, and it's not enough. It's not what it wants from Ukraine, and what it's asking of Ukraine is sort of complete capitulation. Does Putin? Uh, what about the Russian people's view of Ukraine and its relative independence or democracy? Is that a threat to uh, to Putin? If you know, if, if other Russians see, hey, life's not bad over there. Um, this this has been argued, and I think cogently that that. Ukraine presents an example of what a very culturally similar 
neighboring country can look like with um, with free mm-hmm. election, free press, and um, it, it's clear from from the Russian government's hysterical response to the 2014 revolution that that was unacceptable. And I think I would add that um, many people have been surprised by the level of fierce resistance among the Ukrainian people to the Russian government's um, invasion. And it's reasonable to to assume that part of that is that simply they enjoy living in a free country and don't wish to be um, to be ruled by a dictatorship. Matthew, why hasn't Ukraine joined NATO in the past? I mean, I've heard other experts say that it's sort of like a buffer state. Why even is this an issue now? Why haven't they joined in the past? Why didn't they? Well, there are a number of reasons. So um, one point is that public opinion has until recently been divided or even against NATO. And in fact, it's worth mentioning in this context that um, it's only really the 2014 um, beginning of Russian aggression against Ukraine that caused a, a major shift in public opinion so that most people now support joining NATO if they can. Two other factors that that are, are relevant is Ukraine you know, has um, significant problems of military capacity, or at least so it was believed until you know, the, re- the current round of fighting that's performed extraordinarily well, and it wasn't clear that NATO uh, wanted it or saw it as ready. But then, of course, the third point that, that we have to, to mention is extreme Russian pressure on, on NATO not to, not to admit um, Ukraine. And um, whatever one thinks of the decision not to admit Ukraine, I think it's clear that um, by, by shelving, shelving Ukraine's NATO application, um, NATO did not protect Ukraine from being invaded by Russia. That, that, that was not all that, that the Russians had in mind, that they want much more. What about uh, joining um, Ukraine joining the European Union? How is that different from joining NATO? Well, that would also be a tremendously positive thing for Ukraine. And the fact that the EU has expressed support for that idea is, is a positive development. Of course, that can't help Ukraine win on the battlefield, which is what it needs to do to yeah. preserve independence. Um, I mean, at the moment, um, Ukraine is, is, in, is in a state of national crisis. It's been overrun partially. And you know, it, it it it's wonderful that the European Union is is contemplating an arrangement that would you know give the people of Ukraine access to all the benefits of EU membership, including um, mobility and a, and a higher standard of living. But none of that will matter if Ukraine ceases to be independent, which is really the stakes of the invasion. And right now, what Ukraine really needs is military support in the form of uh, equipment, weapons, and and aircraft. Uh, many didn't think that this would last the 28 days that it, it has. Obviously, as you mentioned, Ukraine putting up just a tremendous front and, and, and very courageous, heroic effort. Uh, that being said, what's the off-ramp here? Um, or has many have said Russia's already lost because they, couldn't, they weren't able to do this in a quick and timely manner. Uh, but do they just keep blowing the bejeebers out of the place until there's nothing left and just on the way out, that's it, it's done? I mean, what is the out here? Well, I think you've covered a lot of possible outcomes that are all on the table. So it's very hard to imagine Russia simply giving up. Although, as you said, um, so far they performed much more poorly than expected. And I think, you know, almost nobody in the Russian government um, can pretend otherwise. It just, it was supposed to be a lightning operation that would take Kiev in a couple of days. And what we've seen is the Ukrainian military performing very well under difficult circumstances with, uh, against a much larger opponent and, uh, and, um, without you know all the equipment it needs, and we've seen the Ukrainian people supporting supporting Ukraine's independence in every possible way, including with armed resistance. Unfortunately, one one concern that motivated us to write this letter is that 
we who study this region know that the Putin government is capable of using extreme violence to uh, suppress its its opposition to it. So we saw that in in its war against the Chechen separatist movement in the early 2000s when when um, when entire cities were pummeled to the ground and destroyed and, and thousands and thousands of people were killed. We've, we've seen that more recently in the Syrian conflict. And part of why we we wanted to write this letter was to, to bring to the public attention and the government's attention, not only the seriousness of the humanitarian crisis, but the fact that you know, we, we are concerned that Russia could, could ultimately win if it continues to use more and more extreme methods of uh, brutality against, against Ukraine. And that would be a terrible disaster, not only for the people of Ukraine, but also for the people of Canada. Matthew Light with his Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, European, Russian, Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and uh, how this all got started and Ukraine's interest in joining NATO as a reason for Russia's uh, reaction. Uh, not true. Matthew, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Fascinating, uh, fascinating points. And uh, we'll see where it all ends up. We'll chat again. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Good night. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. It's coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Also, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. I wanted to ask you your opinion on uh, the situation with the NDP. And, you know, there's always uh, dirty politics going on in any party. We see that all the time. Uh, but I th- thought it was kind of fascinating that uh, the NDP released a statement today uh, in which they provide the reasoning for uh, separating uh, and distancing themselves from uh, uh, MPP Paul Miller. Uh, and how the latest vetting procedure and what have you, when there's, as they even say, a pattern of behavior here. Uh, so it seems kind of odd that now they're just kind of discovering this. And the other thing was uh, Paul Miller left uh, or said in front of reporters uh, that he thought that this was uh, cancel culture, which I thought was kind of funny because that's a term the right uses to talk about the left. I've never heard someone on the left talk about their own party uh, well, that no, way. They, they do. They do. Look, at any yes, time. I know, but let's let's be. Here's my point, Scott. My point is. Uh, cancel cultures and populist uh, politics apparently only ever happen on the right. They yeah. never happen on the left, and that's incorrect, and that's what you're pointing out, I'm guessing. Well, uh, yeah, it's look, it, it's, it's cancel culture when it happens to you, and uh, whether this is something <laughs> that is a left-wing thing, there's always someone more left of you. I mean, I don't know, I don't know who the person is. At the well, no, it's the people the on the right. It's the people on the right that always say, you know, this is just can- yeah. ca- uh, ca- uh, cancel culture. It's very. Uh, it's not very often you hear people on the left say they're being canceled because it's usually the no, left that's agreed. canceling them. Agreed, and the reason usually is because the the answer always is that well, uh, you know what, cancel culture is just getting rid of bad stuff. And it's always you on the right who are saying all the bad and uninformed and whatever yeah. stuff. And so, uh, look, I, I, this this is a story that I really think that um, I, I I mean I wrote about it uh, well over a month ago because I happened to be talking to Paul Miller and about something else, and I said, and I assume you're running, and he said, well, and at that point he expressed some concerns that the party wasn't. So this has been going on for a while now, and the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the issues, I think, is, and this is something that, you know, uh, I'm always amazed that political parties get themselves into these jams a little bit. If you're not going to be forthcoming 
about what, and like it finally has sort of seeped out today a little bit about what this is. But if you're going to make an announcement like this, as the NDP and Andrea Horvath did, you got to be really careful because if you're someone who is constantly yelling for transparency from others, it's, you know, this is, and it goes both ways, but this is why, you know, the, these situations, they would have been, I think, way better off to come out and simply say what the issue was right off the bat rather than creating this mystery that made it sound like who knows what yeah. it is now. And yeah, as I say, it, it is not always the case. Isn't that always the case? The less you talk about it, the more you let the rumor mill fly, the more uh, traction it gets. And the next time Andrea Horvath starts yelling somewhere or complaining somewhere about lack of transparency, she is going to have to. This is going to be brought up. Guaranteed, this is going to be brought up. You only this only came out when basically you were forced to. So uh, I'm just I'm always amazed that that politicians and political parties that that don't see what they're setting themselves up for down the road with some of their comments. Uh, yeah, and it, I find it interesting. And what was interesting about this is that, you know, again, usually they're pointing to the right for all of these things, and populism is a great example. Well, and whenever that? I what get it, that? that's... That? I, was, that I, was, all the time. I know, I know. Is, what is popular? Well, an election is yeah. a populist thing. Any kind, That's that democracy. That's, that's exactly what it is. And, and I know that yeah. it has a connotation that somehow yeah. if you're populist, you are scary or evil. Or You're going for the low-hanging fruit. You're, you're telling people what you want them to hear. But again, you tell me that our uh, newly formed NDP uh, liberal prime minister was not being populist when he decided during his election campaign to vilify the 10% that we're not vaccinated. So, you know, is that not populism? Uh, we're all vaccinated, but let's still get everybody to pick on those that don't. It's their well, fault. It's, it's their it's fault. It's their fault. That's populism. That's what people want to hear. Yesterday when he was saying, uh, when he made this announcement, that we're doing this because we're doing this for all the people of Canada. Well, is that not a populist move then exactly. that we are trying to appeal to? Exactly. So it's a word that is essentially meaningless, but like a lot of other things, it means what it wants you to, what you want it to mean. It can mean, it can be one of those words you drop in, like, I mean, unfortunately, racist is another word like that. We know there is real racism. We know that there is real racism. We see examples of it regularly. But you can also drop that word in to basically try and use it as a way to end an argument by throwing it at someone when yeah. there's not even necessarily real racism. Which, which, and the problem with all these words, when you start misusing them and using them as weapons, it takes away the real meaning of the word. So the real issues that you try to deal with then become meaningless because the words have become neutered. Very valid point. And the, the conversation continues after the 6 o'clock news with the Scott Radley Show. You can also re uh, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have fun tonight. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills. Thanks to Dave and Diana in the newsroom. And we leave it to you, the taxpaying, hardworking customer, in this case, Ben, to have the last word. I thought it was fairly simple. If you do bad things, cancel culture is going to get you. It's going to get all of us eventually, isn't it? 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.